0: I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from our children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children, that the next generation might know them the children yet unborn and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this morning we begin a brand new series that will last uh, six or seven weeks. And this series has, uh, is called Ready to Launch. Ready to Launch, it is based on a book by J.D. and Veronica Greer. J.D. Greer is the pastor of the Summit Church in Durham. And God has used him tremendously there and is using him in the ministry in Durham and really in uh, many, many different parts of the world as that church is uh, such a sending church. Uh, uh, So we will be uh, talking about parenting. So I want to mention a couple of things to you. First of all, if you're in here and you're not a parent, uh, if you're a, a kid, you're a teenager uh, or younger, then uh, I'm going to say some things today that uh, there's a crew in the early service of young men who sit to uh, my right. They sit uh, over there where Dina and her crew are uh, every Sunday. And they, they had told me before the service started that they were going to do random amens while I was preaching they would just randomly say amen and so none of them said amen and after the service I went to them and said you wusses you know you were going to say amen you never did what happened they said because we didn't like what you said So, uh, I would just warn you, if you are in here and you're a student, you may not like what I am going to say. It's just a disclaimer to begin our time together that I may say some things that won't sit well with you. All right? So, uh, i just say that I love you uh, very much, uh, but uh, I would say that. Number two, I would say if you're in here and you're a parent, uh, I'm just going to begin uh, by saying that uh, uh, some of the things that Greer makes in his book really do fly in the face of, of parenting today. And of the cultural mindset that we have embraced here in uh, uh, the United States and and, in other parts of the world too, but I can only speak to the culture that I know here. And so if you're not yet a parent, I remember when I was a single person, I, I honestly just listened and took notes and knew that one day I would need them and boy have I needed them. And so if you're not yet a parent, it's a good time to do your prep work and to get ready. If you would like to dig deeper into what we're doing, at 8.30 on Sunday mornings, Lynn Bergen leads a group uh, that is doing this very study called Ready to Launch 8.30 in the Youth Building. You can join them. Or if you'd like to come to the 9.30 service, there's a group at 11 that Chris Allison leads in the house. I think they meet in the house. And they're doing the same study right now called Ready to Launch If Sunday mornings aren't good for you, two weeks from tonight, Kenny and Emily Elkins will begin leading a group for parents on Sunday nights, 5 p.m., called Ready to Launch. And so uh, they'll be doing the same study, just just, uh, more discussion, opportunity uh, to talk about and through what we're doing here. Uh, Through this series over the next few weeks, I want to begin by reading an article not by a Christian. It's uh, uh, not written uh, from a Christian perspective. It was in a 2011 edition of The Atlantic, and it's titled This How the Cult of Self Esteem is Ruining Our Kids. Therapist Lori Gottlieb observes uh, what she calls a growing trend. Parents who work too hard to offer their kids choices, buttress their self-esteem, and guard them from hardship. She says, in the process, we're raising an entitled teacup generation of children that can't handle life's bumps and bruises. She challenges parents Underlying all this parental angst is the hopeful belief that if we make the right choices, that if we do things a certain way, our kids will not turn out to to be, uh, not be just happy adults, but adults who make us happy. This is a misguided notion, she says. We can protect our children from nasty classmates and bad grades and all kinds of rejection and their own limitations, but eventually they will bump into these anyway. In fact, by trying so hard to provide the perfectly happy childhood, we're just making it harder for our kids to actually grow up. Maybe we parents are the ones who have some growing up to do and some letting go. And so she makes some critical and key points that Tim Keller, in a couple of his sermons, uh, affirms Keller, who pastors Redeemer Presbyterian Church in the heart of New York City, who would certainly be on um, uh, engaging the cutting edge of culture, says this, that uh, studies of cultures have shown that when cultures embrace self-esteem, as their marching orders, as their uh, rule to live by, that culture ultimately self-destructs. That cultures that embrace self-esteem as the ultimate aim ultimately self-destructs. So if the whole notion of self-esteem on which many of you have cut your teeth and uh, by which many of you parent, if that isn't biblical, if it isn't the ultimate but you uh, believe it is or you as a child believe it is or you as a parent believe it is, then what is? What could be ultimate? The subtitle of Greer's book is Raising Christ-Centered Kids in a Child-Centered World. And we certainly live in a child-centered universe today. I would say the other um, evidence, if you will, that corroborates my theory that kids are growing up with uh, drunk on self-esteem is conversations with school teachers. Uh, We have many in our church, and I will talk with them or they'll talk with me, just random conversations, and they say, Jerry, these kids show up, and it's clear that they are not used to taking orders from anybody. It's clear they're used to having their own way and having their own stuff when they want it, how they want it and if I as a teacher uh, just enforce any kind of authority in the classroom I've got 25 or so students and a, a majority of them don't want to have anything to do with it imagine imagine a whole class full of students who think the world revolves around them all right, so they get to class and they think the world revolves around them because at home it does. When, when they want something, mommy gets it. And when they want something, daddy gets it. And if they don't like it, they sneer their nose. Mommy and daddy find something else that satisfies them. Mommy and daddy cater to them constantly. And all of a sudden they show up and there's like 25 others. And, and, and they need some attention. And how dare they steal my attention? My attention. How dare they get the, the, the attention that I alone deserve? And so teachers often spend as much time disciplining as they do educating. So here we have uh, the writer, his name is Asaph, and he gives us some insight into just two simple practices uh, so it's not overcomplicated. Uh, here they are, listen and tell. These are for parents. Listen and tell. He says, give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old. Things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generations. Listen, Uh, Asaph says it two ways. Uh, First of all, give ear. Give ear, he says, oh my people. Uh, It's just a more dramatic way of saying listen, but then he extends it by saying incline your ear. Incline your ear. Don't just uh, randomly hope that whatever you're hearing assimilates. Lean in a little bit. Incline your ear. In grad school, I had a whole class in active listening. Uh, It was part of my uh, uh, counseling, uh, part of my degree. And so I had a whole class, a whole semester in how to listen. When I saw that I had to take it, I was surprised. Why would you need a whole semester on how to listen? It wasn't until that I was in the class for a little bit that I learned that listening was indeed an art. It was something on which to work. It was a science and that I wasn't as good at it as I thought. Listening is to lean in, to lean forward, to absorb that which is said. Now, I must say to you that um, God has been rocking my world with this whole thing of listening. And here's where it's coming from Exodus chapter 33. In Exodus 33, something interesting happens there, and when it does, um, I, I just happened to cross it. I don't know if you ever have this experience. You're reading the Bible, and all of a sudden, something just jumps out at you, and you can't get past it. And so for two weeks now, I can't get past Exodus 33. You see in 32 the people took off all their jewelry and they made a golden calf and they worshiped it while Moses was up on the mountain getting the Ten Commandments. And then we get to Exodus 33, and when we do, God tells Moses to take the people out of the Sinai Peninsula there, head north, they'll, they'll go through the wilderness, it should be at most a two-, three-week journey, go through the wilderness, they'll end up there on the northwestern shore of the Dead Sea, right across the Jordan River, and then they'll cross the Jordan and take the land that God had promised But something interesting happens when God speaks to them in Exodus 33. The Lord says, depart, go up. Verse 2, I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. That's good. God is saying, I'm going to drive out your enemies. I'll send an angel. I'll drive out your enemies. And everybody would say, go, God you're so awesome. Not only that, verse 3, go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. We'll reread that. "Ah, That's kind of gross. I like honey a lot, but you may not, and you think that's kind of gross, and some of you may be lactose intolerant, and that's really gross. So what does milk and honey mean? Milk and honey is a euphemism that means all the food you ever wanted. It's like going to that new, new Brazilian gig. I haven't been there in Asheville yet, but I've heard you go there and you have a green card and, and a, red, a card that's green on one side and red on the other. And so if you, if you want to eat, you just keep it green and they just keep the meat coming. That sounds good, right? And so I, I like meat. And so you go there and they just carve it and just keep the meat coming. And if you're weary of it, you just turn it over on the red side. Uh, That's milk and honey. It's good food. It's Ruth's Chris on steroids. All right, never been there either, but heard it's good. It's Ruth's Chris on steroids. It's just good food. God says, I'm going to defeat all your enemies. I'm going to give you everything you want to eat. And you would expect that to be good, right? It is good. Except for this. But I will not go up among you. God says, "What? I'll send an angel to defeat your enemies. I'll I'll feed you everything you want, but I'm not coming." God says, "Lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people." God says, "If I come, I'll devour you. I'll eat you alive. I'll consume you. You're stubborn." Do you know what? I think there are many of us who would settle for that. Okay. God, as long as the bills are paid, the kids are healthy, the job is good, school is fine, just do your thing. Show your power. You know, if I don't have your presence, I'm down with that. As long as I have your power. As long as you provide my needs, God, I'm good. That's good enough for most of us. Check all the boxes. What happens? Thankfully, verse four occurs. When the people heard this, what? What? disastrous word when the people heard this disastrous word god's going to defeat all your enemies he's going to feed you everything you want and that's disastrous they mourned and no one put on his ornaments for the lord said to moses and it's repeated again and, and uh, therefore the people of israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from mount horeb and went onward and then this is what moses did Moses went outside their camp, and he built a tent. He built a tent. And when he built the tent, he called it the tent of meeting. And he said, God, I I want to meet with you. I, I want to hear from you. And so when Moses built that tent of meeting, he was intentional about it. And there was a young chap who came in there with him and said, Moses, let me in on this. His name was Joshua. And so Joshua would follow Moses in this tent and the cloud would come down over the tent and hover there. And all the people, this people who mourned because God said he wasn't going to go with them, they would come out of their individual tents, and they would look at the end of the camp, outside the camp, and they would see the cloud come down over the tent, and they would know that God was here, and then they'd worship. Here's what has struck me. Individually and corporately? Individually, am I fine? As long as the bills are paid? As long as life is good? As long as God is showing up strong? Or do I miss Him in the morning time? Do I want Him? Do I want His presence? So much so that I would go to the trouble to build my own tent of meeting and say, God, I'm not satisfied unless I have you. Do I want him or do I want only what he offers? That has been most convicting for me let me address it corporately as a church so here we are this year we have we will baptize more people than we ever have in the history of our church we will receive more money than we ever have in the history of our church we have sent away almost 70 people to serve elsewhere in revitalization and planting efforts. And yet our attendance is just the same as it was a year ago. All those people have been replaced by new people. So if the bottom line is good, are we good with that? Or do we want his presence? Do we want to come in here and sing show me your glory Lord I want to see you what satisfies us are we only satisfied with the figures and the facts? Or do we want the God himself? And that's what happened. They built a tent of meeting. And when they built the tent of meeting, Moses went there. And here's what Moses says to God later in 33, verse 16. If you're in your Bibles, you should underline it. Verse 15, rather, and he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. God, if you're not going, I'm not going. God, if you're not there, I don't want to be there. I don't want success without you. I don't want failure without you. I don't want good things without you. I don't want bad things without you. I want you, God. That's what it means to listen. Listen. Do you want him? Do you seek him? So he says, listen, listen, I will open my mouth. This is clearly God saying, I'm going to speak. I'm not sending somebody else to speak on my behalf, but I myself will open my mouth and I will speak. So listen, number one. Number two, tell, tell. Notice this, we will not hide them. We will not hide them. Hide what? Let's look at this. The glorious deeds of the Lord, his might, his power, and the wonders he has done. We will not hide them. This is how faith is built. You talk about the works and wonders of God. You talk about the things God has done. You, uh, as parents, sit with your children and you tell them how God came through in this situation and God showed up in that situation. You begin to build Christ-centered kids. Christ-centered kids kids well how does the lord speak these days if he spoke directly through the mouth of his prophets in those days how does he speak well he speaks through jesus christ on the cross all you have to do is look at the cross and see a jesus who died for your sins loved you enough to die for you he speaks through his word he speaks through the holy spirit he speaks through the church and he speaks through experiences with all of the above that's how he speaks he speaks that way. And as parents, our job is to communicate the works of God to our kids, tell the glorious deeds of the Lord, his might, his power, the wonders he has done. We tell. We will not hide them. What? Your testimony, your law. You commanded our fathers to teach their children. This isn't An option. And four, some commentators say five generations are mentioned here fathers, children, next generation, and tell their children. Wow. You can begin something in your family that has never been there before. You can establish a legacy as parents that may be a complete reversal of everything that has ever been in your family. Well, what is our temptation? We are tempted to communicate to our kids that sports matter most. It's probably our number one. Both of my children play sports, I'm not saying it's wrong to play, but it's probably our number one in this culture. You just imagine him playing on the big stage. You imagine her doing what she does in the large, grand scheme. How do they know it? It's where you spend your money. It's where you spend your time. It's the things you talk about most. And kids see straight through it every time, every time. They see straight through it. I was struck by Brady Ruiz. He came to Christ recently. He was uh, baptized and is being discipled by Alan Michael. I was struck by his testimony. I said, Brady, tell me about your, when he came to sit down, tell me about your life. He said, Jerry, I began in church early, and I became a great, a a good baseball player. He said, "So, so all of a sudden, when I'm old enough, my parents started sending me to all these tournaments, one after another, after another, after another. And I fell away, fell away, fell away until when the tournaments were over, I didn't care about God anymore. You say, wow, Jerry, that hits home. Are you saying tournaments are wrong? No. I'm just asking What matters most what's, what's most important? Sports huge in our culture. Maybe it's that your daughter, you know, is is gonna be this remarkable cheerleader. Maybe it's dancing, maybe. It's academics, and you put undue pressure on your kids to perform academically. Oh, there's so many, so many things. Students, let me talk to you for a moment. You have a choice at this point in your life. You can choose to be cool, all right? I mean, you can really make a choice to be Cool. And it will work until you graduate high school, usually, sometimes a couple years into college. But something happens, and I just want to kind of fill you in on it, all right? And adults will uh, corroborate this. So in uh, high school, uh, you could choose, or middle school, you could choose coolness. And coolness can follow you, you know, until you graduate. And then you got about five years, and, and you're at a high school game and you come walking in and your waist is larger than the the inseam of your pants, right? Meaning you're bigger around than you are tall. And when you are, everybody looks at you and says, was that, did, did he play basket? Yeah. What happened to him? I don't know. What happened? Life? Food, bad habits, no coach making you work out. I don't know what it was, but something happened, right? Age happens, all right? Most people don't get prettier the older they get. Some do. It just becomes increasingly harder work all of these things, and and you can be cool for a a period of time and and everybody will just, they'll swarm to you and you'll be a, a remarkable leader for this little period of time. But it won't last. How do we see it? A major research project called the National Study of Youth and Religion found the following three necessary factors if your kids are going to grow up. With faith. We'll apply this to Christian faith. Number one, the young person's parents practice the faith in the home and in daily life, not just in public church settings. All right, moms, dads, you practice it at home. Number one, please hear me and I love you, moms, dads. What we do at Grace is not the number one in in the discipleship of your children. It's only icing on the cake. We cannot do what you can do. We can't. We can add to what you do, but we cannot replace what you do. You're number one. Number two, the young person had at least one significant adult mentor or friend other than parents who practiced the faith seriously. All right, so your kids need somebody outside your home, outside your influence, who influences them. Wendy and I have always been grateful for this in our kids' lives. I look back right now and see Amy Snyder sitting here, and she is that for my daughter. And we're so grateful. In the early service, Pike Davis Jr., just graduated high school. My son, Trent, who's 12, thinks the sun sets and rises in Pike. Pike asks him questions, holds him accountable, and Wendy and I are so grateful. Number one, parents practice it at home. Number two, a significant other adult in their lives who practice the faith. Number three, the young person had at least one significant spiritual experience before the age of 17. What does that mean? Parents, you don't force that. It means that you nurture that opportunity for the Spirit to work in your kids' lives and they grow in the faith early and often. Please hear me. Parents, and I love you, when your kids start to wonder, don't come to the church trying to find why we might be the problem in that. Look to yourself first. Look to yourself first. Then, look to us. We'll fix whatever needs fixing in here. To the best of our ability, but we can't replace you. Can't do it. As many of you know, this has been a crazy week for our family. A week ago, yesterday, Gogo had a heart attack in our home. It's Wendy's grandmother who lives with us. We had no idea. We knew she was ill, got her to the doctor, and in fact, she had had a heart attack, and they got her to Asheville. Only to discover in Asheville, not only did she have uh, 80% blockage in two of her arteries uh, around her heart and, and 50 to 70% blockage in a third, she had colon cancer. And so the colon cancer was discovered and the doctor said we can do nothing for the heart. We must treat the cancer because she was bleeding out. So that doctor sat down with with Wendy and Lib, who happened to be there at that time, the surgeon who came in uh, and said, We're going to do surgery. This is Wednesday night. We're going to do surgery. And I must tell you, we never do surgery on somebody who's just had a heart attack. And we never do surgery on an 83-year-old woman who has just had a heart attack and this kind of surgery. And we make no guarantees that she'll come out of surgery alive. And so family came for the potential of seeing Gogo for the last time. Hannah came in from college. She's been so in our lives in so many ways. So Thursday evening... Was when that happened. I'm coming down the mountain with Trent. It's kind of late. We've been at the hospital. And he looks at me and he says, Dad, do you think she'll make it? I said, Trent, I have no idea. I have no idea if she will or if she won't. And he said, Well, well, I've been thinking. Well, I knew that. He's my son. And our minds don't stop. He said, I've been thinking. And it's dawned on me that if Gogo dies, she'll be with Jesus. And I couldn't imagine a better place to be. He said, I'll be sad. And I will miss her. but she'll be the happiest she's ever been in her life. And I looked over at my 12 year old and I said, you're right, you're right. Now it's one thing for him to get that when he's 12, but I look at you college students here and I love you and so proud of you because you get it when you're 20. You get it when you're 22. And that's the goal of parenting, amen? That's what we want. Students, listen. It isn't our job to make you happy as parents. It's our job to help make you holy. It's our job to help make you like Christ. And guess what? That's going to involve saying a whole lot of no's and just a few yeses. And if you're mad at us, you'll get over it. You'll get hungry and want to eat. You'll want a roof over your head. We know that. We're not freaking out when you aren't happy with us. We aren't. So what happened? Three. don't forget those three. Parents live it another a mentor, a spiritual experience. What is the result? They set their hope in God. They do not forget the works of God. This is in verses six and seven and eight they they set their hope in God they do not forget the works of God they keep his commandments and look at this parents don't miss this and they're not like us that's what it says do not be like their fathers all right, so, so they set their hope in God. They do not forget the works of God. They keep God's commandments when we do this, when we listen, when we tell, and they're not like us. Now, it's very specific uh, about the children of Israel. And so I'm going to close with this, and I'm going to read this as we kind of humorous. But they went up to a town called Kadesh Barnea, and when they got there, they sent spies into the land, 12 men to spy out the promised land that God had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And these spies were going to look at the land and say, okay, this is what we got to do, a reconnaissance in a sense. So here's the passage on the screen from Numbers. Here we go there. Thank you. So listen, listen to this. So these are the 12 guys who were sent in. So Moses sent them from the wilderness of Paran, according to the command of the Lord, all of them men who were heads of the people of Israel. And these were their names. From the tribe of Reuben, Shamuah, the son of Zakur, From the tribe of Simeon, Shaphat, the son of Hori. From the tribe of Judah, Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. From the tribe of Issachar, Egil, the son of Joseph. From the tribe of Ephraim, Hoshea the son of Nun. From the tribe of Benjamin, Palti, the son of Rafu, Sounds like an Italian dish. From the tribe of Zebulun, Gadiel, the son of Sodi. From the tribe of Joseph, that is, from the tribe of Manasseh, Gadi, the son of Susi. Sounds Japanese. From the tribe of Dan, Amiel, the son of Gemali. From the tribe of Asher, Sether, the son of Michael. From the tribe of Naphtali, Nabi, the son of Vap. Something like that. And from the tribe of Gadgul, the son of Machi. These were the names of the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land. And Moses called Hoshea, the son of Nun, Joshua. All right, so here's my point. Here's my point. These are the 12 guys sent to spy out the land. Now, when I teach Old Testament, I do the very same thing. So, so there were 12 of them, and how many of them, class now, brought back a good report? Do you know? Two. Two. And what were their names? Joshua and Caleb. How many of you know somebody named Joshua? Would you raise your hand? All right, just look around the, look around the room. All right, put your hands down. How many of you know somebody named Caleb? Raise your hand. How about Shemua? Eagle? Why don't we know their names? Because they were boneheads. That's why they brought back a bad report, and nobody to this day names their kid Eagle. Nobody to this day calls their kid Shamua. Why? Who would want to name your kid after a loser? Who would want to do that? You see, we've gotten so accustomed to the pronunciation. We think, well, Joshua sounds English and Caleb does. No, no. If it had been two other guys, those names would be so familiar to us. Guess what? They sound English too. Parents, I want to ask you a question. Are you willing to raise a Joshua and a Caleb? That's the question. Are you willing to raise a Joshua and Caleb? Are you going to settle for an eagle or Shemua? So let me give you practically how to do it. When you leave today, you'll find a family mission statement. This right here, it's straight from Ready to Launch Resources. And uh, I'll give you just a few pointers on the screen. Number one, engage the whole family. Sometime this next week, sit down with your family, engage the whole family, and say, we're going to write a mission statement for our family. This is what our family is all about. Number two, identify specific goals and values based on Scripture. You already have values whether you like it or not, and your kids know what they are. It could be money. It could be education. It could be where you live. It could be sports. It could be a whole list of things. Engage the whole family. Number two, specific goals and values. Number three, work together to craft a statement. So work together, husband, wife, if your kids are old enough to craft a statement. Number four, creatively display and reinforce your family mission statement. Number five, evaluate it periodically. All right? So this is your homework for the week. Number one. Number two. All my life I've struggled with finding a good devotional that accompanies Scripture for my kids. I've just struggled all my life. I've gone, I don't know how many i bought, and it occurred to me, well, why don't you just write it yourself? So this week I met with Alan Michael and Adrian, and we decided we would do just that. So beginning tomorrow, on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, on our blog, enoughfortoday.org, you will find a little chunk of Scripture and three or four great questions that you as a family, if you have children this big or this big, can use and discuss. What we will do between now and next spring is move through the entire Old Testament. So if you'd like to take your family and march through the Old Testament, we'll begin in tomorrow, you can. And if you don't have a family yet, but you'd like to march through the Old Testament... Just check out the blog enoughfortoday.org and three times a week it will be up and you'll have the opportunity to lead your family to grow in God's word. Make sense? So two things. Number one is you leave, get a blue flyer, develop a mission statement. I love to hear some of them. So email me, uh, post it on the blog. Love to hear some. We'd love to hear back from you. Number two, uh, starting tomorrow, at least three times a week, sit down with your family, just a little chunk of scripture, three or four questions. We'll give you some acceptable answers to those questions so you're not flying solo or in the dark, uh, but three or four questions. Uh, We hope through this that your family will begin to grow. Let me pray for you.